You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A long time ago, I had read about this study that had been going on for over 80 years that basically the scientists at Harvard found 724 people in 1938, and they're still doing this study. It's an 80-year study of their happiness, the happiness of their children, grandchildren, and on and on. And imagine studying what are the most likely causes of happiness over long periods of time across thousands of people and then their descendants. Such a fascinating study. And then the guy who's in charge of this study now, Professor Robert Waldinger from Harvard, he did a TED Talk a few years ago that got over 40 million views. So people, their lives changed by the information that is uncovered in this study. And he just wrote a book called The Good Life about what he's learned from this study. He's also a psychiatrist, a, a, a Zen priest. He's got a, a, a huge background about around the study of well-being and happiness. Such a pleasure to have him on the show. Again, his book is The Good Life. And let's find out. I really wanted to find out how I can live the good life. So here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. I can't believe I'm talking to you actually, because I've read through the years about this study uh, and like this incredible study you guys are doing, which for the past 80 years, you've been studying happiness. You, you had the first initial group of 724 people, then their children, grandchildren, maybe their great grandchildren, and you're still studying this same cohort and asking them questions every year and tracking their happiness. It's clearly the longest study on happiness ever. Is it the longest study period ever? It's the longest study of any depth. There are, a f I think there's a study that might have gone even a hundred years, but it was very superficial. Most studies are if you go that long. And so what we've done is we've taken these deep dives into 724 families. You know, now it's 85 years. We're in our 85th year. Is there any selection bias in the sense that people who no longer participate skew the results in a, in a possible way? It's a, such an important question. Most longitudinal studies fall apart for just that reason. Like too many people drop out. And so scientifically, it's untenable to keep going. We've had an 84% retention rate. Only 16% of the families have ceased to participate in 85 years. And why does someone which not participate? Amazing. That's a critical question. Well, sometimes people didn't participate because their lives were going in terrible directions and they were ashamed. And some of those people would circle back. So they don't count in our attrition rate. Sometimes people's lives were so chaotic that they simply didn't respond ever or we couldn't find them anymore. Sometimes, you know, the inner city group included people born into terrible disadvantage and some of those people got in trouble with the law and so they didn't want to be found. So there are a variety of reasons why people dropped out or were lost to follow up. I wonder if anybody dropped out who, and, and not to get to the cliffhanger or whatever, I wonder if there were many people who dropped out who actually had a lot of friends and were very happy and so decided they didn't need to be part of this study anymore. So that might've skewed the results a little. Well, they never told us that, but some people would say things like, I hate your damn questions. They're so annoying. It's a bother that you contact me so often. You know, so people would say that. Now, maybe the people who didn't tell us anything and just ghosted us were 
like you were saying, you know, thinking, eh, I've got enough in my life. I don't need this. Or maybe they were very happy, um, but didn't have a lot of friends. That would skew the results. <laughs> could be. It could be. And, you know, let me ask you a question. Yeah. The picture above your TV, can you tell me who that is? That's my mom. Okay. That's my mom when she was like 20. And uh, is she still alive, may I ask? No, no. She died many years ago. She died pretty young, age 67. Wow. Um, Were you close to her? Obviously, you were. Yeah. The biggest photo on your bookshelf. Uh, I was very close to her, yeah. So, and then the wedding photo next to it, is that your kids? Uh, Next to it are my kids. So the there's a one in the little striped shirt, and then the red shirt is my older son, and the one next to the red shirt is my younger son in the striped shirt. Yeah. So you so you're 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 practicing what you preach. You've got like old and new, uh, your relationships, you're 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 nurturing them yeah. a, as we speak. You keep their presence close. Well, you know, I've learned to do that. Like that's been part of what's been a revelation for me about doing this research. I began to say, wait, you know, I'm a Harvard professor. I could work all the time until I drop dead and my life will be over and I'll say what happened. And so I started paying much more attention to my own personal relationships. Let's say you don't see them all the time. Does it help to have their photos present? Does that like add to your feelings of they're with me in my life? You know, I keep my kids' photos and my wife's photo like on my desk at work, although I don't go in anymore since the pandemic to Mass General Hospital. But what I found was I began to take them for granted that I needed to mix it up to really notice again what was sitting right there on my desk. So I found that just like anything I could get used to, like I get used to these photos sitting in the background. Unless like someone like you gets me to look at them because you're curious about them. So your curiosity is getting me to look at the photos with fresh eyes again. Oh, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to help. You are. In your book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Uh, and this study started around 1944, if I'm correct. It started in 1938. 1938. 724 people. Do you think the results, the conclusions you've made about happiness and what keeps people happy have changed through the years? Or is it just every generation is kind of confirming what you learned as early as 1950? Most of it remains the same through the years and across generations. That there's so much about us as humans that is common both to you know, genders and ethnicities and parts of the world and all that. The human experience is kind of what it is. And yes, there are differences, but the differences are less impactful, less important than the similarities. So I would say, yes, across generations, that the things that made people happy in our first generation were the things that are making them happy later on, you know, in the second generation, for example. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in exactly what you just said, but I want to stress the overriding conclusion of the study, and this is not going to shortchange the rest of this podcast, but the overriding conclusion is that people are happier for longer periods of time in their life if they nurture and cultivate their friendships, their relationships with their loved ones, with their friends, with their kids, with their partners, and so on. That's the secret to happiness. It is. And (laughs) it's the best investment you can make. So I want to play devil's advocate for a few minutes. First off, did you find anyone who was extraordinarily happy, who was basically a hermit? We did. And there are some stories about that in the book. Like we put stories in there of people who had really unexpected lives, different paths through life. One guy was a man who... He wasn't a hermit, but he was kind of emotionally shut off from his family. The Sterling answer? It wasn't Sterling, although he's another guy who was pretty isolated. There's another guy in the book who was kind of emotionally shut off, even though he was right there with his family. And they were all like, come on, dad, like, show us who you are. And he was like, what's the problem with this? Why does everybody want more from me? And so there are people whose perceptions are, I'm just fine without really opening myself up to other human beings. 
And we found that those people felt pretty happy. The people around him weren't so happy, which we find interesting. Because he wasn't as communicative. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how how often do you have to communicate for it? Like you, you mentioned that not only do you have to nurture these, but one metric you study is how frequently people communicate with their friends or loved ones. Like what, 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 how often do you have to communicate for it to be meaningful, for it to have uh, an effect on your life? There's no set frequency as I'm sure you can imagine, right? That, that one size never fits all when you study thousands of lives. But what we find is that it really matters to keep contact, right? And not just once a year contact, but you know, regular texting, emailing, calling, meeting up in person, that what we find is that the people who do that, who make it a point to do that, we call this social fitness in our book, that those people end up being happier because they have more vibrant social networks. It's It seems like hard work. Like, let's say, let's just pick a number. Let's say you have a partner, you have two kids, and you have five friends. Okay, I'm just making up numbers. That's eight people now. You have to like call, text, return calls, email, actually then go out and do things with. Like that's that's a lot of work. <laughs> well, it depends on what you think of as work. I mean, what else you got to do? We could all stay home and watch Netflix. We could all stay home and doom scroll through other people's Instagram feeds. Yes, we could do that. And that's becoming the path of least resistance. Right. But what we're finding is that if, you know, you could consider it work or you could consider it a way to keep your brain stimulated, a way to keep you energetically enlivened by really keeping these connections active. And you, you mentioned the point that it's never too late. Like you had one person towards the very end. I think his name was uh, Andrew. It wasn't until he was about 67 years old. He was retired. He started seeing a therapist he kind of distanced himself from the upsetting things in his life. He started going to a fitness club and at the age of 67, he started making friends for almost the first time in his life and he got happier. Yeah. Yeah. And it was when he didn't expect to. And I think that's the, the cool thing about that never too late chapter that we wrote that we, we found all these examples of people who were sure that it was never going to happen for them. They were never going to find friends. They were never going to find love. And then it it happened. You know, I've had people in their 20s tell me, I'm just not good at relationships. It's just never going to happen for me. My response is, you have no idea what's ahead for you. Just be open to it. And, you know, what about when other things get in the way that could short circuit the way you nurture relationships. For instance, if somebody, let's say, gets laid off from their job, they have money worries, they're, they're losing their home, they're afraid they're going to be homeless, money might not make them happy, which is, I think, a conclusion, not only of your book, but many other studies of happiness, but money could, lack of money can certainly make people miserable. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Dan Kahneman did a good study of this, oh, it might be 2017, in which he asked that question like, okay, how much does happiness go up as your income goes up? And what they found was really good evidence that below about $75,000 a year in the US average household income, annual household income, below 75K, your happiness went up a lot as you made more money because it means you can get your basic needs met. You can have housing and food security and healthcare and educate your kids, all that stuff, right? But he found that once you get above getting your basic needs met, so in his case, it was 75000 a year. Once you get above that, you could make $75 million a year and you won't get much of a bump in your level of happiness by making 10,000 times that much money. And that's the difference that getting your basic needs met is essential for happiness. But beyond that, financial gain isn't the answer. And have you studied this across, and and I don't even know if there are real definitions for these categories, but introverts and extroverts, like extroverts, you know, get energy from 
going out of their way to socialize and be around more people. Introverts kind of recoup their energy by being by themselves. It doesn't mean one has more friends than the other, but I'm curious if their levels of happiness are, are different depending on how their social needs are met. To the extent that we studied it, and I can't say we did rigorous studies of introversion versus extroversion, but our introverted, shy people, on average, were no less happy than the extroverts. You know, our culture prioritizes extroversion. We kind of glorify it. You know, the party animal is like an iconic character. And nobody wants to be the shy person. But actually, as you probably know, shy people are perfectly well adapted to the world and perfectly creative and wonderful human beings. But what we do find is that, you know, as you were saying, that shy people don't need the degree of social stimulation that extroverted people do. And in fact, it's stressful to have too many people in your life. So it's a highly individual matter how much social connection you need. And I'm wondering, so obviously there's different types of social connection. Like you could go out to a party every night and some people could be miserable doing that. Some people could be happy doing that. You could visit your kids once a week, once a month, whatever. And depending on the person, it might may or may not satisfy your needs. What about passive ways of interacting with people? Like we discussed the photos in your background. But for instance, you mentioned watching Netflix. Like I watch TV with my wife and kids, you know, a couple times a week. And we talk during the shows and it's fun and we make jokes and stuff. But, you know, primarily we're, we're staring at the screen watching TV. Is that a bad substitute for, let's say, going bowling with them? Well, let's say it is a bad substitute. So it doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, I mean, my wife and I watch TV and- um, What's the last show you watched together? Kunk on Earth. I don't know. Do you know that document? It's a, it's a fake documentary by a British comedian, C-U-N-K, on Earth. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. Take a look at it. It's a, it's a, it's a mockumentary. Okay. Um, and it's, it's kind of fun. I just have to say, I love that. I love Kunk on Earth. Oh, wow. You saw it, Jake? You've never recommended it. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, is it's, it's humorous. It's comedy. It's not, it's not factual. It, it has factual, but like the way... You thought the, I wouldn't be interested in factual. comedy? I thought you like more in-depth, you know, I comedy. Own, I own the comedy club. <laughs> All right. But anyway... You know, it sends up... What it does is it sends up the kind of nature documentaries and the, the whole genre of you know, British documentaries about the natural world and life on earth and historical documentaries. It's, it's fun. It gets a little repetitive, but the episodes are half an hour and it's kind of a hoot. All right. So yes, but you were asking about watching TV, right? Yeah. And what we find, you know, you probably know Robert Putnam's work, the sociologist who wrote a book called Bowling Alone oh, yeah. in the eighties, right? And what he found when he surveyed our investment in social capital, he called it, in, you know, joining clubs and going to houses of worship and inviting people over and vacations and family dinners. He found that it all dropped precipitously in the 1950s. And that seemed to coincide with the introduction of television into the American home. And then when he looked again in the early 2000s, the same parameters had dropped again massively. And the thinking is it had something to do with the introduction of all these screens, you know, that we're so addicted to. And it doesn't mean that we have to give up our screens forever. It just means that using it as a substitute is the problem that when we, when we simply stare at screens in parallel as a family, and that's primarily what we do, lots of things suffer. So we know, for example, that family dinners are hugely important. Families that eat together regularly in that way have kids who have better vocabularies. They do better in school. They're less likely to get into trouble at school. They're less likely to get into drugs. Um, all of those parameters. And so we know that this investment in, re in real life interaction matters a great deal. Do you think the appeal of social media was that it gave people the false crutch that they were interacting with? friends when they really were not at all? Yeah, it does. 
And in fact, there's a little bit of research already that shows this, that essentially how we encounter social media makes a big difference in whether our well-being goes up or it goes down. That that if we just passively scroll through other people's Facebook pages, the curated lives that we show each other, that we start feeling worse. We compare ourselves to others. Uh, Self-esteem goes down, particularly in young people. Depression goes up. If, on the other hand, we actively connect with other people, that can enhance well-being. So, you know, example, one of my friends during the lockdown of the pandemic reconnected with his grade school friends. And now they've started having coffee on Zoom every Sunday morning. And they are thrilled. They just love this. Oh, that's right? great. So they're using media. They're using the digital world, but they're using it to actively connect with each other. And so that seems to be the distinguishing feature of of whether our well-being goes up or down with social media. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do. But I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, you've used the word well-being and you've used the word happiness. And, you know, I've spoken with Martin Seligman, the founder of the field of positive psychology, and there's a difference between the two, right? Do do you mean it differently when you say well-being versus happiness? Well, the research suggests that that happiness falls into two big buckets. And I'm sure you talked about this with Marty Seligman, that there is happiness that's called hedonic well-being. Like, am I having fun now? Like I'm enjoying this conversation with you. So I'd say I'm having some hedonic well-being going on here, but I might have something annoying happen in the next hour and be really unhappy, right? So that's a kind of momentary happiness. Then there is what's called eudaimonic well-being. It's from the Greek and it's basically that kind of happiness that is the sense of I'm having a meaningful life. I'm having a life that's worthwhile. The best example was given to me by a a mother of a young child. She said, okay, I'm reading to my child at bedtime and I've read Goodnight Moon to her for the seventh time. And she's saying, mommy, mommy, read it to me again. And I'm exhausted and I'm falling asleep myself. So am I having fun reading it for the eighth time? Not at all. Is it the most meaningful thing I could imagine doing right now? Yes. So difference between hedonic well-being and eudaimonic well-being. Yeah, because I think like he he includes elements like freedom from, you know, worrying about your, you know, where you're going to sleep tonight, how you're going to eat your food, you know, the, the the basic money worries. He includes mastery in the definition of well-being. So here's a case where the mom is basically being a great mom. And so that provides well-being, even if it's not necessarily momentary happiness. And so that all together. And so is, is general well-being also connected to nurturing the relationships in your life? Oh, absolutely. In both directions. So we get positive energy from people when the relationship is good. We also have buffers. So relationships protect us from some of the worst parts of life challenges. You know, so when we're sick, um, when we're financially stressed, when we need a ride to the grocery store, I mean, all these things are potential stressors. And if we have people in our lives, they help us with all of that. So That's interesting. Yeah, they buffer us from the harder stuff and they help us derive positive energy as well. And do you think, and, and again, the Andrew story was inspiring because it's, he's 67 years old when he kind of started this in his life. Do you think though it's, and using the word better might be incorrect here, but do you think it's better if people are, you know, maintain their childhood relationships their whole lives or this is neither here nor there? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, the thing that's unique about those childhood relationships is that you can't replace them. So one of my closest friends was somebody I went to kindergarten with and have stayed connected all through our lives. And when we do get together, which is a few times a year, he lives in New York, I live in Boston. Sometimes our wives will sit there and laugh at us because we'll be arguing about something that happened in the third grade that we disagree about, right? You can't make new friends that can argue with you about the third grade, about your experiences. So having that backlog of, of shared memories, of shared experiences is something unique. On the other hand, it's possible to make friends very late in life that become powerful, meaningful, sustaining relationships. So it's just that I think these long relationships are different. They provide a kind of warmth and a sense of belonging that is different from the newer relationships in our lives. And on average, and I I know, again, it's not one size fits all, but on average, the people who are happiest in your study 
how many friends would you say they have? <laughs> I'm just asking the most naive questions because yeah. I, I, I always wonder this for myself. If I have enough, if I have too little. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, there is no right answer, right? Because the right answer depends on you. So if you sit there right now and think to yourself, do I have enough social connection in my life? If you answer yes, then you've got the right number. If you feel like, gee, I really don't have enough people who I have fun with, or I don't have anybody I really talk to about the things I'm worried about, then you need more. You need something a little different, right? So it becomes a highly individual matter. You know, you have a chapter on the differences uh, between casual friendships and like intense best friends. And maybe discuss that distinction a little bit. Like what's the effect of one versus the other? They do have different effects. The casual relationships give us these little hits of well-being as we go through the day. Like, you know, if you're friendly with the barista who makes you your coffee at the coffee shop in the morning, you know, or you chat with the cashier at the grocery store uh, every week, um, those are little hits of, hi, I recognize you. It's nice to chat for a few minutes. Very different from telling somebody about what I'm worried about with my younger son who just got laid off from his job. You know, that's a very different experience. But what about in the middle where like someone goes bowling once every two weeks and sees the same people? So they're friends. They laugh together. They do an activity together. They spend five, six hours together on twice, you know, once every two weeks, but they might not share, oh, my son, you know, just did this. My daughter's having this. They might not be that personal. Right. But they still know each other more than they know the barista. And I don't think anybody has actually studied that has compared like how much well-being do you get what are what are your stress levels when you have this kind of friendship predominating in your social world versus that kind of friendship i don't think anyone has done that kind of study i it would be really hard to do no you have the data right you again andrew is an example where he's friends with everybody in his fitness club and he spends time with them and he knows them and he knows their lives but he still lists himself on a scale of one to seven as a seven in terms of loneliness. But he doesn't list that. He doesn't list that once he has that friend group. Oh, I thought that, I thought he was still feeling pretty lonely, even though he had. No, no, he was feeling lonely. And when he made that friend group, it was like, whoa, his life really turned around. I see. So it had still a similar type of effect as having close lifelong friends, for instance. Yeah. But what we what we don't know with Andrew, he might have found one or two people in that friend group at the gym who became really close personal friends, right? So we we asked our original subjects, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And we asked them to list everybody and some of them could list most of them could list several people. Some of them couldn't list anybody. And what we think is the case is that everybody, whether you're shy or extroverted, everybody needs at least one or two relationships like that. Somebody who you just feel like they'll have my back when the going gets tough. So the ones who couldn't list anybody, were they less happy than the ones that could list one or two on average? Yes. Yes. They were on average less happy. What about on the fringes? What have you noticed on the fringes? Like, was there anybody who could list zero, who who couldn't list any, um, but they were... above and beyond happy? Not above and beyond, but we had some people who were quite content Mm. not listing anybody. Mm. Not very many. So again, what we're talking about are big group averages. You can find people who are isolated and are healthy and happy and, you know, but they're not nearly as common. Like if you want to place a bet, on who's going to stay happy and healthy as they go through their life, the bet would be on the people who've got more social connection. Shut up. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Is there any situation where, and and you discussed this early on in the book with um, Leo DeMarco or Mark, Mark Leo DeMarco? Good memory. Yeah. Well, it's Whoa. it's because the the short term memory stays for a while because the eh? every page is like imprinted in my head right now, and then it'll and, and then it'll go from my prefrontal cortex further back, and I'll lose access after. See, a while. that's because you're young. When you're older, it's the short term memory that goes, and the longer term memory that stays. <laughs> Well, no, I'm I'm 55, so I've experienced that too. Uh, uh, my my after by tomorrow, the I will remember the book, but the I'll remember the normal style memory for my age of of the book. But now, yeah. because I've been preparing yeah. for the podcast, it's the book I could t- I read word for word the acknowledgments probably of your book uh, out loud. Wow! But this this happens to me. Like I can remember, th- you know, in other areas of my life, I can remember. What I ate for breakfast, like on January twenty fifth, nineteen eighty nine, but I can't remember Amazing. what I had for breakfast this morning. Like anybody else, yeah, yeah. our age. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, you mentioned that these studies seem to be true regardless of demographics or background. And there was a, a student you mentioned in the book. I think her name was Amanya, who was a little nervous about being a part of this. You know doing research with the study, but then she took home some of the studies for, she took home one study for a night of a white male. She's an Indian girl uh, born in yeah. India. And she was so excited. She began work on the study. And that was kind of evidence perhaps that it was relatable to her, even though she came from a completely different background. But I wonder if you were to start this study right now, today with a different cohort, a different group of people that you start with, if the results would be any different. And I wonder if you've tried that, like kind of in parallel, starting a new generation of, of study. Yes. I mean, the results would undoubtedly be different. It depends on what we're asking about. So if you ask about certain basic things, they would probably be the same. Like if you ask people, what's a number one priority at certain ages, they will tell you it's family. Uh, you know, if you ask people at other ages, they'll tell you it's finding a good job. You know, there are certain developmental patterns that are consistent across generations. But on the other hand, if we started talking about the digital revolution, oh my gosh, I mean, you talk, you know, there are huge generational differences within our own study and within the same generation. So we have people in our second generation who are in their 30s and who are in their 70s. And those people are so different when, when you talk about their experience of the digital world and they're the same familial generation. So that's all a way of saying that in some ways you will find big differences. You know, if you start a new study now and in some ways you won't find much difference at all. And I, I guess the reason I'm asking is everybody you're studying now is descended from your initial cohort, your initial group. And right. so- Right. Uh, you know, there's wives and stuff that have added into it or spouses. I mean, um, but in general, most of the people you're studying share genes with the initial people. And so this gets to the nature versus nurture question. How much of the happiness of descendants is because genetically they're descended from the happier ancestors? We are trying to study that and we haven't done the analyses yet. We've collected some data that will allow us to study that. So, for example, we did study uh, happiness in marriage. And were you more likely to have a happy marriage in the second generation if your parents had a happy marriage? And what we found was that it was mixed, that it was particularly important, it seemed, for women whose fathers were happy in marriage, that that seemed to be a particularly strong connection. But it's often complicated, you know, as you look across generations at these parameters. And the data analyses are really complicated, <laughs> um, especially when you study siblings in the same families. 
Yeah. So yeah, siblings or twins is a common thing to study. Like, do you find ever, I mean, I'm sure there's cases where the siblings are vastly different in terms of happy marriage, sad marriage, happiness overall, sadness overall. Has there been any result that surprised you? A surprise about? You, uh, like maybe you thought twins would have equivalent happiness compared to like further flung cousins or siblings. Yeah. Well, okay. One of the things we found was that the inner city group was no less happy than the Harvard group, which we found interesting, you know, because these inner city kids were born into really troubled families, but they grew up and made lives for themselves. And they were as happy on average as the Harvard guys who were much more privileged. What are the societal statistics on that? Like, like what's the suicide rate among um, the different levels of education? Well, the statistics depend on who you're talking about, on which generation and which demographic. One of the reasons why our original inner city group was pretty happy as they grew up is that they were all white and they were in the World War II generation. They were, they were a little younger than the World War II generation. But basically, if you were white in the city of Boston, you could get loans, you could buy a house, or you could live in a decent neighborhood where there were good schools, educate your kids, hold, get and hold a decent job. This was in like the 1940s, 50s, 60s, right? So people of color would have fared very differently. The reason why we had no people of color in our original sample was because the city of Boston was 97.4% white. Really? In 1938. Yeah. If you started in 1938 with a study in Boston, you had all white people. And, and you know, we've been glossing over that because it's almost a cliche to say, oh, being, you know, nobody ever said it on their deathbed. I, I wish I had spent more time on my job. And, you know, that's a, a kind of saying or cliche or whatever about the nature of happiness. But do you find that anybody has kind of achieved their well-being or a good sense of well-being from their professional success or just from their professional success? What, you know, what we find is that people achieve well-being from doing work they care about and work they find meaningful. And that's different from the titles or, you know, what we call the badges of achievement, right? That the badges of achievement, you know, might feel good for a little while, you know, like I got my professorship at Harvard, you know, and that felt good for a little while. And then it's just my title, like, you know, who cares? But the work, if the work feels meaningful, that's different. And so many people could look back on their lives and say, I was proud of this work that I did. You know, Ben Bradley was editor of the Washington Post, and he found that much of the way that he shepherded the journalism of the Washington Post was meaningful to him. He cared about it. He felt good about it as he looked back on it. And, and that very much follows the path that's often outlined, which, and you even discuss in the book, is that, I forgot his name, Arthur Marcus, maybe? Uh, Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks. Yeah, who who talks about uh, how when you go from your 20s and 30s to your 50s and 60s, you need to move from, as Ben Bradley did, the muckracking investigative journalist to a mentor, an editor to the next generation. And that kind of yeah. provides more meaning in your life because you really can't go out and find, you know, be hunting all night for clues about Watergate or whatever. You, you kind of have to your responsibility shift, your energy shifts, and, and so on. And I wonder how you can cultivate a sense that, okay, now's time to shift more towards finding a different kind of meaning in my life than direct professional success and, and so on. How you can cultivate it? Yeah. You're asking? You know, I think it's watching around you. Like what what's needed? Where are you most useful? And I think, you know, I have to do this, right? Like I'm in my seventies and I have to figure out, okay, where have I kind of done what I'm going to do as a kind of frontline person? And where do I really need to foster the, the next generations to do some of these things that I care about? 
And I'm getting the message more that I really need to do that um, as I look around. Because otherwise, if I drop dead tomorrow, some of the things I really care about are going to fall apart because I haven't provided for leadership in the next generation. So that's a big part of what I'm doing. I think we just have to pay attention. Um, you know, for some of us, that mentoring needs to come in our, you know, if you're a professional athlete, that needs to come in your 30s as you plan for retirement. Um, if you're a psychoanalyst researcher, it can come in your 70s, right? Because we don't, right. we're not doing anything physically strenuous. I mean, I, I, but you know, it's not just physically strenuous. Like Brooks points this out in his most recent book that um, mathematicians often reach their peak age at the age of 25, whereas historians... Right reach their peak age in their career at the age of 79. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and he's discussing the difference between fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. And right. I wonder though, if your peak age, if you pick a career where your peak age is much younger, if you become, if it's more easily for you to be less fulfilled later on, because you're, you're still too young for just providing, you know, mentoring in life. That's a really good point. And I think a lot of the successful younger people pivot that they figure out ways to do different things that will utilize their ability. I mean, you know, you think about the athletes who retire, some of them just go home and do nothing. And some of them find new careers. Um, some of them find mission and purpose they never dreamed they'd have once they give up their professional activities as, as athletes. You know, and look at Jimmy Carter. I mean, Jimmy Carter peaked supposedly as president and yet his greatest impact happened after his presidency because he really found different ways to influence the world. You know, and, and a, an interesting counterexample is just a few years before Carter became president, Lyndon Johnson. So he reached, as you said, the peak, the presidency, and he thought his legacy might be, you know, his civil rights legislation, his great society legislation. But it turned out that most people knew him from escalating in Vietnam. So he started smoking again. He started drinking more heavily, even though the doctors had told him 15 years earlier that that's a, a, a death warrant because he had had a heart attack and so on. And he, he died shortly after. He, his quote was, you know, to his kids who were horrified that he was smoking again, you know, I've had you kids. I've been president. I'm done. Wow. Well, and if that's what he wanted, then that's what he wanted, right? But the, And we do know that many people let themselves go when they retire, for example, or particularly when a spouse dies. Like the, the death rates, particularly for men, when they lose a spouse are high in the years immediately following. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they stop taking care of themselves. So taking care of your health, and actually that's one of the things our longitudinal study finds, that taking care of your health is the other enormous investment that you want to make to keep yourself healthy and happy. I've read in the past that we all have kind of a baseline of happiness. So let's say you're, you're at your baseline and then you break your leg and you feel sad for a while, but then you go back to your baseline. Or you, may, you win the lottery, make a lot of money, you feel happy for a while, and then you go back to your baseline. And that it's very hard to actually move that baseline, whether you're naturally super happy or naturally a little bit more depressive. But what what are ways have you discovered in this study that maybe people have moved their baseline up? Many of the things we're talking about that, you know, Lubomirsky's estimate is that 40% of our happiness is under our control. So, you know, not using alcohol and drugs getting regular exercise, those things actually affect mood. They affect happiness levels big time. And then relationships, social connections, finding meaningful activities to do, these things matter a lot in terms of, of our activities, in terms of our well-being. I mean, I get energy from other people. So I find that if I have more times during my week, when I have interesting conversations like the one I'm having with you, I'm happier. Um, that's a that's a useful thing for me to do. Somebody else may get happier by spending a whole afternoon out in their garden. Uh, it's highly variable. And you know, you're looking at this from several different angles, and I'm curious about the other 
kind of disciplines you've mastered and how it, how it affects how you look at this study. So in addition to being a professor at Harvard and uh, an MD, you're also a psychopathology psychotherapist, which kind of looks at childhood experiences and how it affects adult behavior. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but that's a little different than what the study suggests, which is that you could change your adult behavior from adult experiences. Well, the study suggests both. It suggests that childhood experiences really matter. And we found some statistical connections between well-being as a kid and well-being in your 70s and 80s with your spouse, right? And those are hard to find, real statistical correlations, because so much intervenes through decades, right? So childhood matters, but childhood isn't destiny. And we found many people who have corrective experiences. You know, they might have terrible childhoods, but then develop relationships with spouses, with partners, with friends that are corrective later in life. So childhood matters and it's not a prescription for what your adult life has to become. And and similarly, you you're a Zen priest in both the um Rinzai and what's the other one? Soto 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 tradition. So one if, if I am remembering correctly, one is focused on using koans, like uh, kind of phrases or, or that have no real meaning, but kind of meditating on what their meaning might be to have to get insight into, into your process, into your thoughts. The other one is more just observational. You, you observe the thoughts as they come up and you're, it's more about just awareness of, of thoughts and then putting them away and, and distancing yourself, practicing distancing yourself from your thoughts. So A, why did you pursue both disciplines? Because they seem like somewhat different disciplines. And I'm just curious what the effect, there's been a lot of work research on meditation and happiness, but more on the compassion meditation side, which is neither of those traditions. Okay. So, okay. So tell me what, what question do you want me to answer first? And I, so why, why, why personally did you go through both traditions because when i read oh, yeah. if i read like a, a a zen any zen book it's usually one or the other like um what's the the shenru yeah. suzuki his book uh, the beginner beginner's mind that's pretty much zen the soto uh tr- soto. tradition yeah yeah good for you you've really looked into this so i didn't study the traditions separately my first teacher had transmission in both lineages. He got transmission from a Soto teacher and transmission from a Rinzai teacher. So what he began doing is teaching Zen that had both Soto elements, an emphasis on just sitting, on meditation, not distancing yourself from your thoughts, but simply coming back to the present. Thoughts are not the enemy. They're not to be pushed away. They're just there and to be left alone when you can and come back to the present. But then there's also the Rinzai school, which emphasizes um, awakening through koan study. So I've studied hundreds of koans. I teach koans now to my Zen students. Um, and I find both are really important. Like, like just deep immersion in meditation is a very powerful tool for me. And in addition, the koans have been very important factors in my own kind of awakening. So they're not how so? They're not mutually exclusive. How so? Yeah. Um so koans are like these fragments and they're often meant to be little fragments that illustrate something about the truth of life that you can't get from figuring it out. You can't get from the rational mind. The way you know how to answer a koan is through your experience in meditation. And so actually, um, when I give an answer to a koan, it will often sound nonsensical, but the teacher will recognize it as a valid answer because both of us have had experiences in meditation that tell us that, yeah, that's the answer. One koan is, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? And the answer is the oak tree in the garden. Now, that makes no sense. But it does to me, it makes a lot of sense to me. And it's after years of meditation. That's so interesting. And 
I'm, I, I read a story once. Um, I guess the story takes place about a thousand years ago. And this Zen master is, is getting ready to pick his successor and his, he, and he shows, uh, a mirror and, uh, uh, he asks his top student, uh, you know, what does this mirror mean to you? And, you know, I forget the exact answer or something like, you know, clean mirror, clean mind, something like that. And then the, the chef in the kitchen comes over and says, smash the mirror. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think they both became the new successors of the monastery and it was very different styles of answer. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are different styles of answer. So because Zen talks about this, this non-duality that is the duality, this kind of, there's the phenomenal world, the world in Zen, they call the world of the 10,000 things, which is there's you and me and our microphones and, you know, these screens we're talking to each other through. And then there is the world of non-duality of oneness where it's all completely interconnected with no fixed separate existences. Um, and that we get intimations of that through practice, through meditation. And it's both. It's always both. How would you compare this practice to like people like Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta, Maharaj, the Advaita Vedanta tradition, which seems similar? You know, I can't compare them because I'm really not versed in those traditions that you just named. So I can't tell you. I can tell you a little bit about comparing them to Vipassana or to sure, some other which also traditions. seems very similar. Yeah. So Zen is a is sort of it's Buddhism infused with Taoism and Confucianism. So Zen is the the love child of of when when Buddhism came to Japan and encountered Japanese culture. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis on simplicity and a de-emphasis on things like stages. So Vipassana has stages of practice where you go from one stage to a next stage to a next stage. Zen says, that's all made up. That's all completely made up. There's just this, just sitting, just the experience of this moment. Um, no stages to be gone through. That That's all a fiction of the mind. Um, so that's one one difference. Another, probably the biggest difference is that when you ask what the essence of Zen is, it's the, the teaching that we are already Buddhas, that we just need to recognize it. That's different from the idea of becoming a Buddha. It's interesting because then you look at like the Dalai Lama, who let's say talks about a completely different kind of meditation, which is this sort of loving kindness or compassion meditation. And he's done a lot of work towards you know, studying MRIs of the brain while people are, are meditating and, and also the differences between focused meditation, which is more, maybe more Zen style versus loving kindness meditation. And from his research, it seems loving kindness meditation does affect that baseline of happiness a little bit more. He's not saying it's better or worse, of course, but he's saying it, it affects more directly that baseline of happiness versus focused meditation. And they've shown that it does. Now, I don't know versus, but I know that they've shown that explicit loving kindness meditation makes us feel better. It makes us feel warmer toward the world and toward other people. Zen practice doesn't explicitly offer loving kindness meditation. It's not forbidden. It's just not part of it. Zen practice doesn't do constructed, guided meditation. It's just sitting, just sitting in silence. But what Zen teaches is that compassion arises naturally. Compassion for the self and for other people as you sit, because you get to know the messiness of your own heart and mind, right? And all the junk that's there swirling around. And then you begin to realize that, well, everybody is like this. And you begin to have more compassion both for yourself and your own craziness and for everybody else's craziness. And that that can make us more accepting, more tolerant, more caring about other people. Again, in, in your study, 80 years old, over 80 years old, one of the main conclusions which we've discussed is that people find a higher level of happiness 
if they nurture and cultivate their relationships. What do you think is the connection between that and meditation? There does feel like there's a connect the dots thing where like you said, you be, with meditation, you become aware of kind of the messiness of human existence yeah. because you see it in yourself. Maybe with friends, you're able to see it in others. So you find it also in yourself. Well, actually, I think that's a great connection, which I had not made so much, but it's one of the things that makes us more reluctant to prioritize relationships because they're messy, right? Because they're unpredictable. I mean, you're a constantly changing being. So is your partner. So are your kids, right? So we're all moving targets, right? And so any two people coming together in any moment is a new thing, right? And that's wonderful on the one hand. And it's like, oh, wow, I don't know what you're going to be like today when I talk to you. So there's, a, there's an edginess to it that's different. And that's the same with meditation. No two meditation sessions are the same. You know, I meditate every day. No two meditations are alike. And I'm like amazed. It's just like always different. And so that's both wonderful. And it's like, oh God, there's nothing fixed, nothing stable. Whereas there's something so predictable about some of the other things we do. Well, you know, given the predictability of it, let's say this longitudinal study goes on for another 80 years. Why continue it? It seems like you've gotten the conclusions you're going to get. Yeah. What more do you hope to discover? Well, I think we're probably not going to continue it indefinitely. I think what we're doing now is emphasizing collaboration with other research groups, which we've done all the way along, but, but much more so now. We're emphasizing making our data publicly available so that other people can come and ask questions of the data that we wouldn't even think of. Um, all of that instead of doing subsequent generational research. So what we find is that the we've studied the first two generations, but the third generation, which we have not reached out to, includes, we're pretty sure, people who are not yet born and certainly people who are babies. And it also includes people who are in their 40s and 50s. So how do you even call that a generation at that point? And how do you study it developmentally? It's been hard enough studying our second generation because the, the spread, the age spread, the developmental spread is so wide. So we think, and also we're a study of all white people. So we think that those are the arguments for saying we've had a good run. We've been of use to the world in what we find, and we're gonna let other people carry the ball forward now. And also, I guess it depends on what kind of data you've captured. So for instance, do you keep track of everyone's diet? No, we don't. Because that might be interesting. Everybody who eats yeah. peas for breakfast is happy. <laughs> we haven't. I think if we were to start now, we might, but we never really did that. Because yeah, it depend it's interesting to see what data you have. And you know, in terms of the generational stuff, you could start looking at things not by first, second, third, but how society defines a generation. So there's the boomers, there's the yeah. greatest generation, boomers, Gen X, the millennials, and you know, right. Gen Z and so on. And you mentioned that briefly when you talk about the people who grew up with cell phones as opposed to the people who grew up with TVs as opposed to people who grew up with nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess you could slice the data in different ways and that could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. But like, so, so what's next for you? Uh, well, for me, it's doing a lot of getting these ideas out there. Like part of what's been important for me is saying, what do I want to do with, you know, this later part of my career? And a lot of it is I want to bring these ideas out into the public domain because we've been publishing all these papers in highfalutin academic journals that nobody reads. And so when I gave a TED Talk in 2015, like it went viral. I thought it was going to be this tiny little TEDx talk and that was it. It went viral because people were hungry for this kind of information about what actually happens to people as they go through their lives. So I want to do more of that. And that's what lights me up these days. You know, you should, uh, I'm throwing out advice that wasn't, wasn't asked for, but you should do a, a book on how the Soto and Rinzai tradition combine. Cause I never saw a book yeah. like that. Well, I bet there may be some, I'm not sure you, you may be right. Uh, but I, what I'm doing more of is trying to look at the interface, the interconnection between Zen and 
lifespan development because it seems so rich to me now. I appreciate you coming on. I mean, I've read for years about this study. I never thought I would be actually talking to one of the people in, in charge of the study. So it's, it's yeah. so fascinating to, to learn all this stuff. The only thing I was going to ask is if, you know, level of exercise is something that you track because as you said, people who focus on health tend to nurture their relationships better. It's all interconnected. And I've read somewhere recently, or no, it was on this podcast recently that leg strength, oddly in particular, was very important to well-being later yeah. on in life. And why is unknown? Yes. People being able to get up, get up out of a chair without using your hands right? Yeah. That's, or get up off the floor without using your hands. That's a great predictor of longevity. We did track exercise. And what we found was it was very powerful. It is very powerful in predicting longevity and in predicting health as you get older. So, you know, one, one older person said, take care of your body like you're going to need it for a hundred years. All right. I got to start doing that. 55, I'm yeah. over halfway there. So so no Do better it. time than like it's the worth beginning. it. Yeah, it's worth it. Well, Dr. Robert Waldinger, do you go by doctor or professor? What do you prefer? I don't know. I go by Bob. Thank you so much. The book is The Good Life. Read the book. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Shout out on Twitter or whatever if you if you liked it and subscribe to the podcast. And Bob, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. What a great conversation. Thank you. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 